This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Orcalcum. Here at the GM Word of the Week, we talk about Dungeons and Dragons a lot. In fact, on average, about 100% of our episodes begin and end in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. That's because this podcast began its life as a sort of word of the day calendar for game masters of Dungeons and Dragons. Partly, these explorations of various words that come up in the game help fill the heads of GMs with inspiration and stories and context to create their worlds. And partly, it's just fun. Because of D&D's particular place in the history of the fantasy of the genre, it's an easy jumping off point for any discussion of fantasy worlds. It basically unified a lot of the fantasy genre that came before it, and then inspired a lot of what came after. Most video games, movies, and books of the modern fantasy genre were either created by folks inspired by childhood games of Dungeons and Dragons, or else were created by folks inspired by those creations. So today's word, oracalcum, is something of a rarity. It's one of those things that crops up just about everywhere, except Dungeons and Dragons. Orichalcum is another one of those rare and mystical magical materials that shows up time and again across the fantasy spectrum. It's especially prevalent in video games, but for many years it was easy to miss in video games because many home console video games of the 80s and 90s were created in Japan and translated from Japanese. Unfortunately, it seems that many translators had never heard of Orichalcum. For example, in the biggest fantasy RPG series in all of Japan, Dragon Quest, the legendary Orichalcum Sword of Lodo, or Erdrich to us Americans, the legendary Sword of Kings, was made up of Oricon instead. In fact, various misspellings and mistranslations of Orichalcum have shown up in a lot of Japanese role-playing games, filling the same role as Mithril or Adamant. But Orichalcum has appeared in a few American-made games. In LucasArts' 1992 adventure game Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, which has been called the greatest Indiana Jones film that was never actually a film, Indiana Jones races the Nazis to acquire beads of the mystical metal around the globe. And in the fantastic spin-off of the Age of Empire strategy simulation game for the PC, Age of Mythology, Orichalcum was used by the technologically advanced Atlanteans. That Atlantis thing, by the way, is not a coincidence. Remember that. Orichalcum has also appeared in tabletop role-playing games, just not the ones we usually talk about. In the fantasy cyberpunk world of Shadowrun, Orichalcum is a mysterious alloy of gold, silver, copper, and mercury. It's referred to as a metallurgical nightmare to create, but it can be used to enhance the magical powers of that world's wizards. Orichalcum is also used by the secret wizards hiding in plain sight in modern society in White Wolf's Mage the Awakening. And hey, guess what? It came from Atlantis in Mage as well. What a weird non-coincidence you should continue to remember. But if Orichalcum is so prevalent, except in Dungeons and Dragons, it must have come from somewhere, right? So what is Orichalcum and where did it come from? Well, the answers are actually pretty simple. We don't know what Orichalcum is. And it came from a place that we're reasonably sure didn't exist. 
Let us explain. Orichalcum comes from ancient Greek writings. It comes from the Greek word oros, meaning mountain, and kalkos, meaning copper. But when Romans translated Greek writings, they switched the O at the beginning with an A and a U, so the ora part was spelt like the word ara. That meant, in Latin, it became aracalcum and meant golden copper instead of mountain copper. And that change is significant because it has led to a lot of confusion about what orichalcum actually was. Orichalcum was first mentioned by the Greek writers Homer and Hesiod. Both lived around 600 to 700 BCE. Maybe. See, very little is known about either of these two folks, especially Homer. The problem is, Homer appears to have been born before the ancient Greeks invented the concept of years, and Hesiod might have been as well. In case you're curious, the first year to be recorded and numbered in the Western world corresponds with what we would call 776 BCE. That year was the first year that the Greeks needed to measure. Why? Because they had to know when the second official Olympic Games would be held. See, at the time, Greece, and most of Mediterranean Europe and Asia Minor, was divided into independent city-states. But widespread trade and culture diffusion resulted in a sharing of language and religion. So, from Iberia, what we call Spain, to the Black Sea, there were lots of folks who worshipped Zeus and his kids and spoke Greek. Because of this, and despite conflicts and competition for resources between the city-states, they had a reason to get together. And competition, personal honor, state honor, and spirituality were all very important to these various peoples. Near a province in southern Greek called Elis, there was a sanctuary, a holy site dedicated to Zeus. Legend connected it to the birth of Zeus, and one story speaks of how a group of powerful ancient spirits descended from the Titan Gaia, the mother of the world, entertained baby Zeus with a foot race there. As early as the 11th century BCE, people gathered at this sanctuary, called Olympia in honor of Mount Olympus, to honor Zeus and his wife Hera and hold festivities. Eventually, the site would include several massive temples, as well as a 50-foot-tall statue made of ivory and gold honoring Zeus. The first festivities held included a foot race between young women. The winner would earn the honor of becoming the new priestess of Hera. Soon thereafter, a second foot race was instituted for men with the winner becoming the priestess's consort. These races became parts of larger festivals over time, the largest of which included the sacrifice of hundreds of oxen to Zeus. And in 776 BCE, an agreement was signed to hold regular races and other competitions open to all free men from all city-states every four years. Now, we're not saying they didn't have years before 776 BCE. Obviously, the Earth went around the Sun and seasons passed before then. But they never had a reason to really count the years and to agree on a single counting system across all of the city-states of ancient Greece until they had to keep track of the Olympic Festival and the Pan-Hellenic Games. And since they didn't start counting before then, that makes it very difficult to figure out who was born when. Homer and Hesiod were both poets of ancient Greece. They may have lived at the same time, or they may have been separated by hundreds of years. Homer is most famous for writing two great epic poems, 
The first, the Iliad, describes the Trojan War. If you remember our first Lost episode, we described that conflict in as much detail as anyone can. Because we're still not sure if it really happened, or whether Troy was a real place, or even where it might have been. Homer's second book, The Odyssey, describes the fantastic journey of Trojan War hero Odysseus, who is just trying to get home after a long day at the wars. He has to deal with sirens, cyclops, the sea serpent Scylla, and all sorts of other things that would make a great video game. Why hasn't this game been made? Meanwhile, Hesiod wrote a number of works that survived to the modern day. The most famous two are Works and Days, which gave an account describing the mythic history of ancient Greece, and Theogony, which discussed the origin of the universe and the relationships between all the gods, goddesses, demigods, and other supernatural figures. The point is, Homer and Hesiod were significant because their works tell us almost everything we know about the ancient history, culture, religion, and mythology of the ancient Greek city-states. But they only mention Orichalcum here and there. They didn't really describe it. For a good, solid description of Orichalcum, we have to jump ahead three or four centuries to the writings of a philosopher and to the land of Atlantis. See? We told you that Atlantis would be important. Now, everyone has heard of Atlantis. It was supposedly an advanced culture that built a massive city-state on an island somewhere. But then, the island sank into the sea and the Atlanteans disappeared forever. Nowadays, we're pretty sure Atlantis is just another fun myth. But unlike a lot of ancient Greek myths, we can actually trace this one back to the person who seems to have started it all. Maybe. And that someone was Plato. Plato was a philosopher from the city-state of Athens. He lived between 430 BCE and 350 BCE. And he was a somewhere-in-the-middle child of a pretty significant bunch of people. He was the student of the philosopher Socrates, and he was, in turn, the teacher of Aristotle. And between those three figures, they pretty much invented the basis of Western philosophical and scientific inquiry. Now, we've mentioned Socrates before. Recall that he was running around teaching kids to question everything, even religion. And that got him in trouble with Athenian authorities for corrupting children. A lot of trouble, for which he was put to death, on the assumption that dead people are a lot less trouble overall. Well, one of the kids Socrates supposedly corrupted was Plato. Plato left Athens after Socrates was put to death and traveled around Italy, Sicily, and even into Egypt. He met many other philosophers of his day, including the mathematician Pythagoras. And he even became an advisor to the rulers of the colony of Syracuse. Eventually, though, he returned to Athens and founded an open-air lecture hall in a garden dedicated to the Greek hero Academus. And there, in his so-called academy, yes, that's where we get the word, he began teaching anew. Soon thereafter, he began his writing career. And this is where we get to Atlantis. See, Plato had a couple of odd habits. The first was based on his worship for his old teacher, Socrates. Socrates preferred to teach by questioning. He would present a question and, through discussion and further questioning, help his students reach the correct conclusions for themselves. That, by the way, is called the Socratic method. 
When Plato wrote, he preferred to write on a format known as the dialogue. In his dialogues, he would present discussions between Socrates and various other individuals to capture the questioning, interactive spirit of the Socratic method. Next, he preferred exemplary teaching. Now, we think the word exemplary means really great. But the word really means by way of example. Thus, Plato's writings often involved complex hypothetical situations to serve as examples of his ideas. In one of his earliest dialogues, Timaeus, he describes how the cosmos is based on geometry and introduces a concept with which all gamers should be familiar. The concept is of perfect, regular shapes which form the basis for everything. These include the sphere, tetrahedron, hexahedron, octahedron, dodecahedron, and icosahedron. You know them as the sphere, the d4, the d6, the d8, the d12, and the d20. The platonic solids. But we digress. The point is, in Timaeus, the character Critias tells the story of an ancient civilization that once subjugated much of the known world. A civilization based in the Atlantic Ocean. Atlantis. Unfortunately, the island was racked with earthquakes and floods, and it was ultimately swallowed by the sea. That story gets picked up and expanded upon in later dialogues. The Dialogue of Critias According to Critias, Atlantis was an island nation that had existed over 10,000 years before Plato had been a zygote. The island was home to a powerful, noble race of wealthy people who were basically the center of all civilization at that time. Now, if you're curious as to where that puts Atlantis in the whole of human history, let me tell you some of the things that were going on in the world when Atlantis ruled Europe, Egypt, and Asia. The Neolithic, or New Stone Age, was beginning. Pottery had just been invented in Japan and China. The first cave paintings of bison were being painted in Spain. In the Middle East, agriculture was being invented. And domestication was still a pretty new idea that was just catching on. So, it is unlikely there was a grand cultured civilization ruling ancient peoples across Europe, Asia, and Africa. Anyway, Atlantis was the domain of the god of the land and seas, Poseidon. On the island, he fell in love with a mortal woman named Cleito, and he surrounded her home at the center of Atlantis with ring-shaped canals to protect her. Cleito had ten children, and she divided the island among them to rule. Her first son, Atlas, not the one famous for holding things on his back, ruled the center of the island. Walls, canals, roads, and buildings were built in concentric rounds covering the island, and the land was lush and fertile. Supposedly, the people grew rich, powerful, and prideful, which caused Zeus to become angry and sink the island into the sea, scattering its inhabitants, as gods are prone to do. Now, the story may have been a mythical origin story, and it certainly has some Garden of Eden overtones. One myth suggests that Atlanteans were immortal, and Zeus feared that their immortality combined with their wealth and knowledge would lead them to challenge the gods. But in Plato's Critias, the philosopher seizes on the opportunity to describe how Atlantis was ruled and to use it as an example of an ideal society. See, Plato was kind of obsessed with creating the ideal society. In fact, 
His idea about how society should be governed by wise, benevolent kings and based on a meritocracy formed the basis for his most enduring dialogue, the Republic. In all likelihood, though, Atlantis was just a fanciful story or myth that Plato used as an illustrative example. It's pretty clear to most scholars that Plato didn't believe Atlantis was ever a real place. Aristotle even famously joked that his teacher had a habit during his lectures of conjuring societies out of thin air and then destroying them. And honestly, except for a few gullible students, no one took Plato at his word. Until 1627. In 1627, the philosopher and scientist Francis Bacon published a novel called The New Atlantis. In that novel, Bacon describes an ideal utopian society on an island in the middle of the Atlantic, and there was a brief resurgence of interest in Atlantis as a result. Then, in 1882, in the United States, a social reformist and novelist named Ignatius Donnelly wrote a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. And drawing on the works of Plato and Francis Bacon, he presented the lost continent as a real place that could really be discovered. Ignatius Donnelly started his career as a social reformer and political activist. Born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he and his friend John Nininger moved to Minnesota and founded Nininger City. They envisioned it as a cultured, libertarian utopia where small farmers and workmen could thrive free of the influence of wealthy bankers and financiers. When the city failed, following the financial panic of 1857, Donnelly was left as the city's only resident. Thereafter, he became active in politics and joined a new, up-and-coming political party that had been founded by anti-slavery activists, small government activists, and supporters of the lower and middle classes. The U.S. Republican Party Donnelly became governor of Minnesota and eventually served as a U.S. congressman before he retired from politics. Thereafter, Donnelly focused on his writing. He presented a variety of interesting theories that we nowadays would classify as fringe science. He presented theories about ancient civilizations being affected by comet strikes, volcanoes, and other disasters as the real-world grounding for mythological events. For example, the fall of the Norse gods wasn't just a myth. It was precipitated by a comet striking the Earth. And Atlantis, as mentioned, was a real island that had really sunk into the sea. He was also of the opinion that William Shakespeare did not exist, and his personal hero Francis Bacon had written all of Shakespeare's plays. He also wrote several science fiction novels, one of which, Caesar's Column, described a dystopian future in which an oligarchical United States government enslaved the workers through the use of radio and television propaganda and poison gas attacks. We should note, radio, television, and poison gas attacks did not exist when Donnelly wrote these books. It was his book about Atlantis that was most successful. And that book touched off a firestorm of interest. Suddenly, people wanted to find Atlantis. It had to be out there somewhere. And it was almost certainly loaded with riches. But what does any of this have to do with Oricalcum? Well, according to Plato, Atlantis was rich with Oricalcum. He described the walls and gates of the great city as flashing red with Oricalcum. And the great temple of Poseidon at the heart of the city shone with the reddish gold metal. 
Orichalcum was a precious metal, second only to gold and platinum in value. The trouble is, only the Atlanteans and a few mythical figures in other Greek stories had this stuff. According to Plato, it was only mined or made in Atlantis. So that's it. Orichalcum is just a mythical treasure of a non-existent society that was basically just used as example text in a political textbook. And it would have been entirely forgotten if a crazy libertarian social activist in the 1880s hadn't used it as the basis for a theory that was basically the equivalent of all that ancient alien garbage the History Channel keeps putting out because they seem to have forgotten the difference between history and bull... <sighs> But we digress. And all of that is why everyone was surprised when we discovered a bunch of orichalcum. Twice. You didn't see that coming, did you? What happened was this. In 2015, a group of divers were exploring a 2,600-year-old shipwreck off the coast of Sicily. The ship had apparently been bound for the Sicilian port of Gila, when it was caught in a storm and sunk just before entering the harbor sometime around 500 BCE. The ship was loaded with artifacts from Greece and Asia Minor, indicating it was a trade vessel. But most interestingly, they also found 39 ingots, metal bars, of some sort of weird red copper, the likes of which had never been seen before, but which fit various descriptions, including Plato's, of orichalcum. An analysis of the metal indicated that it was a brass-like alloy made by an ancient alloying technique called cementation, and it was composed of zinc, copper, and charcoal. And that's not all. Another, more recent expedition to the site yielded a pair of soldiers' helmets, also made of the same metal. So does this mean Atlantis was real? Not in the least. It just means that what we assumed was a mythical metal was probably not mythical at all. It was just extremely rare and highly valuable. And when Plato and other writers mentioned orichalcum, they were using it to emphasize great wealth or value. Plato saying the walls of Atlantis were covered in orichalcum was probably just akin to us saying that someone is so rich they have a bathtub made out of diamonds or something. Still, Orichalcum and its connection to ancient myths and mystical societies certainly makes for a compelling story. As does the story of an ancient wealthy society that was wiped off the face of the world by vengeful gods, leaving only their ancient riches behind, somewhere beneath the waves. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>